Welcome to our first seminar session for this afternoon. And uh, my name is Alistair Huang. I'll be doing a more formal introduction in just a moment. This seminar is entitled, All You Need to Know About Money on an Index Card. And so as you can tell, this is a personal finance related talk. It is, is more general in nature. And then the second hour after this one, we're going to dive more into more country living related subjects in the finance realm. So I am going to actually introduce myself through the course of the presentation in just a moment. So I won't, I'll dispense with the pleasantries at this very time, but we will go ahead and have a word of prayer as we dive into our topic this afternoon. So let's bow our heads together as we begin. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for bringing us safely together to this beautiful campsite uh, in which we can gather to reflect on the joys and the blessings of the soil and what you have in store for us as we garden and apply the things that you have taught us. But as we take a moment this hour to contemplate our money and how you all have given us counsel to manage, that, manage this resource, I pray you'll give us wisdom as we study these things together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Welcome, everyone. If you are in the Foyer, come on in. We are just getting started. So let me just start by sharing a little bit about myself. Uh, let's make sure my clicker is working here. There we go. So I am a chartered financial consultant. What that is, that is a professional designation for financial planning. So I do have some professional training in the area of personal finance, and I do have a firm, uh, financial planning firm that I work, that, that I own and I work part-time. I'll share a little bit more about that in a minute. I'm also a business major, uh, but more important than that, I was once a math teacher. When I tell, when I share about personal finance, I always like to explain, you do not need a business degree to manage your money, but you do need to know how to do math. Okay? There's no substitute, you know, decimals and fractions and percents and adding and subtracting. So, Regarding that business degree, I got a master's degree from Southern Avenue University. Uh, apologies to Southwestern. Uh, I know it's just down the street here. Uh, but Southern. Uh, but what's most fascinating, perhaps, is the fact that I managed to work my way through uh, debt-free, my graduate program. I don't think we're going to have time to talk about that story here today, but my story is recorded elsewhere on Audioverse if you want to check it out. And also, in addition to that, we bought a house and we paid it off in two years. In 2013 to 2015, a two-year mortgage period. In our next hour, I'm going to be sharing a lot more about our home. I'll have pictures and I'll give you all the numbers, uh, so you'll want to stay for that. Now, in 2015, we had our first daughter. You can see her in the picture here. She's seven years old now. And then we had our second child in 2021. And you know what they say about children in regards to your budget. It's like a nuclear bomb, right? Like you have a kid and your budget just erupts. So how did, it, how did it work for us? Okay, so the first full year that we were parents in 2016, we spent 25% of our income, we gave away 26%, and we were able to save 49%. We were pretty happy with that. Well, what happened when we had our second child? In 2022, this last year, we spent 18%, we gave 27%, and we saved 55%. So it is a, 
in my personal experience, it is not necessarily the case that children have to wreck your budget. It is possible uh, to, to manage with them in your life. Now, the question often comes, well, you must have, you know, a lot of income or some way of making lots of money. So there it is. So during all this time, I worked for Audioverse as a one ministry income home. My wife stayed at home since we had, after we had our first child. And um, when we say ministry salary, you realize that's a euphemism for not very much. <laughs> you understand? I, if, if you work in the ministry field, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All right. Well, looks like uh, we're advancing here. Thank you very much. Let me see if, yeah, it's still not going. And uh, there might be another clicker on the way. Hopefully we're going to be able to make that one work. Apologies for the delay. Thanks so much. All right. And I also don't have a secret sugar daddy, uncle, with lots of money that's funding our lifestyle, no secret windfall. We don't have a secret stash of Bitcoin somewhere. Okay? So this was all from our take-home pay and so forth. So if you want to find out more information about us, my wife and I write a blog. We used to write a blog, I should say. It's still up and available, and some of the information is still relevant. It's called savingthecrumbs.com. And also my financial firm, financial planning firm, is called Advent Edge Financial. A couple of you have already come up and asked me about this, so I'm just going to mention this now. The question is, are you taking new clients? The answer is, kind of. Um, I have a long wait list, unfortunately, and I do work part-time for the firm. I'm a full-time employee of Audioverse, and that still is my first priority. So, yes, I'm, I, I would love to help people, and if you come up to me, I'd be happy to talk to you here and, and hopefully answer some of your questions. It may not be a full workup and, and so forth, uh, but that is indeed my firm. You can look it up online if you want more information and so forth. And, of course, Audioverse. Audioverse. Uh, is my full-time position. I work there as executive director, and Audioverse has been a partner with AdAgra since year one. We have been working with the organization here, and we've been pleased to be able to distribute the content. And also, if you ever want to catch up on previous conference materials, you know where to go. And I know a lot of people hear about AdAgra from Audioverse, and we're glad to be here. And this seminar and all the other ones will be recorded as well. All right. So I want to tell you a story of my very first job. I started working, I don't remember, eighth grade, my first paying job outside of the home, and I want a pair of basketball shoes. Why would I want basketball shoes? I mean, look at me. Do I look like LeBron James? No. But all my friends wanted basketball shoes, and so, of course, I want to be like everybody else. There's a lesson in there about personal finance, and that's don't keep up with the Joneses. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I earned $5.25 an hour. That was minimum wage back then. I don't know what it is now. And I could do the math. I thought, if I work 10 hours, I'll have enough money to buy a $50 pair of shoes. Anyone do this kind of math before? The hourly calculation. That's the normal course of events. Now, what happened next? Well, what happened next is I wanted a PlayStation. I'm a recovered video game addict. And how much would that cost? Okay. So I'm looking, sorry, this clicker is still not going. I may need somebody to help click back there. So the game I wanted was $84, so I see 16 hours worth of work. And then I'm going to need to keep going here because I want to buy sunglasses. All my friends have cool sunglasses. Uh, I'm going to need a digital camera as well. And, of course, 
every self-respecting young man about to get his driver's license needs a truck. And I very quickly realized, working at $5.25 an hour, there is not enough hours for me to earn money to buy a, a car. And so what, what's the next thought that enters my mind? I need more money. And it, has that thought ever crossed your mind? If only I had more money. Well, then this is exactly the trap that leads us to doing what we see here. And that is the rat race. The narrative on wealth in America today is that if you want to be happy, you must consume more, right? We are not American people. We're not the American population. We are known as the American consumer. <laughs> I mean, just think of that word. Happiness equates, is equated to consumption at all cost. And if you want the American dream, well, I've got this brand new American Express to sell you. You can have the American dream. Just charge it up on the card. Doesn't matter if you can't pay it off. Easy money, and you can have the illusion of the American dream. But the American dream can very quickly turn into the American nightmare. So let's see what it says here in some of these articles. Uh, my apologies again. Okay, so it can be... Uh, let's just take a look at the headlines here. Earning six figures isn't enough to buy the American dream anymore. Wow. Paycheck to paycheck nation. Why even Americans with higher incomes struggle with bills? And J.P. Morgan says, expect a Category 1 economic hurricane in 2023. So, wow. Even if we earn a, a large salary, there's an economic hurricane coming, and it sounds like even the, the wealthier among us are living paycheck to paycheck. What hope is there? So along comes Dr. Harold Pollack. He is a professor of the University of Chicago. He was on a radio interview when he just blurted out partway through. He said, the best financial advice for most people would fit on an index card. He said, it's not that complicated. You hear all these headlines. They're trying to confuse you and make it so complex, make it feel like you're just hopeless and there's no way they can get ahead. He says, finances are simple. And so what do you suppose after the radio show? The phones lit up and people were like, well, show us the card. He just blurted it out. He, would, he, didn't, he hadn't thought it through. And so he went home and he actually put a card together. And here it is. This is what he put. Max out your 401k or equivalent employee contribution. Buy inexpensive, well-diversified mutual funds such as Vanguard Target date funds. Never buy or sell an individual security. The person on the other side of the table knows more than you do about this stuff. Save 20% of your money. Pay your credit card balance in full every month. Maximize your tax-advantaged savings vehicles like the Roth, SEP, and 529 accounts. Pay attention to fees. Avoid actively managed funds. Make financial advisor. Commit to a fiduciary standard. Promote social insurance programs to help people when things go wrong. All right, so that's his card. But you notice it's very investment-centric. It doesn't really apply to everyone, so people called him out on that. And he ended up writing a book, and he ended up having cards for different stages of life, like for young people and retired people. He, he kind of turned it into a little industry for himself. But I, even though I'm, I don't fully agree with some of his principles here as, as necessarily being universal, I do agree with this premise that the basic principles of sound money management need not be complicated. And so I took upon myself a challenge 
to come up with my own index card. And that is the subject of our presentation today, the Crumb Saver Note Card. All right? These are 10 principles that I believe is applicable to all of us and founded in scriptural principles on money management. All right? So for the rest of our time, we're going to be trying to, to be as efficient as possible to race through 10 principles of money management that fit on an index card. All right? So number one, whoops, let's go back. Pay God first. Pay God first and aim for 25% or more. He owns everything. How many of you have been studying the Sabbath school, adult Bible study guide quarterly? I know, I know Brother Cameron over here. If you haven't checked out the Talking Points program, he and his friend Mark Howard, it's a wonderful program. But the whole quarter is really on this subject, so I, I'm not going to belabor the point, but the fact of the matter is this has to undergird everything else in our stewardship responsibilities. So the question is often, so in light of this, do I pay God out of the gross or the net? Right? This is always a question that gets asked. The fact that we're saying pay God first actually helps us explain this question. So if we pay God first, then we ought to pay God before Uncle Sam. That's the principle. He ought to get the first fruits. So how, what does this mean practically? So for us as individuals, that means before our tithes should be calculated before our payroll deductions and our taxes. What about for a business? Businesses are different. If you have a business, you understand the accounting and the books and all of that. You have your gross income before all of your business expenses are deducted. And then you have your net income, which is what's called, called the bottom line. And you get taxed on your net income, not on your gross. And so for a business, the way to, uh, to calculate this is after all your uh, business expenses are calculated, but before the taxes are taken out. And the reason for this is the Bible principle, and I have the verses there. We're not going to have time to read them. The tithe is on our increase, and increase means the profit. And moreover, the uh, reality is that for many businesses, they don't even have a 10% gross margin, meaning if they take a 10% tithe off the gross, their business would fail. And so it is an untenable position to universally apply. So therefore, we're still paying God first, on the increase of the business before Uncle Sam, so that he's still getting the first fruits in that, in that regard. Uh, however, if in your particular situation and in your business and you feel the conviction that I can do it and I can pay a 10% on the gross, guess what? God is an honest business person. If you overpay him somehow, he'll pay you back, all right? So this is not necessary to say you should not give more to God, of course, uh, but as a, the universal principle, it is after business expenses but before taxes. All right, let's continue here. So how much, right? How much ought we to give in tithes and offerings? I mentioned 25% on the slide, and I'm, I figure some people have little question marks popping up in their, in their heads. This is actually, this I've, I've derived from the spirit of prophecy. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 527, it says this, the contributions required of the Hebrews for religious and charitable purposes amounted to fully one-fourth of their income. And what percent is one-fourth? 25%. There you have it. So a so heavy a tax upon the resources of the people might be expected to reduce them to poverty. 
How can we possibly give 25%? That's so much. Well, Sister White anticipated that question. But on the contrary, the faithful observance of these regulations was one of the conditions of their prosperity. Look at that. On the condition of their obedience, God made them this promise, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, and all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, save the Lord of hosts. Particularly applicable at an agriculture conference, if you ask me. So we sometimes look at this and say, but that must apply to the people back then. Can't it possibly apply to us today? Well, let's keep reading. In the days of Israel, the tithe and free will offerings were needed to maintain the ordinances of divine service. Should the people of God give less in this age? The principle laid down by Christ is that our offerings to God should be in proportion to the light and privileges enjoyed. And to whomsoever much is given of him, much will be required. The work of the gospel as it widens requires greater provision to sustain it than what's called for anciently. And this makes the law of tithes and offerings of even more urgent necessity now than under the Hebrew economy. So does this principle apply to us today? I believe it does. But let's be careful. Is this a Ten Commandment level, thou must do this? Or is it more of a gospel appeal where Sister White is saying, let's come up higher together for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, right? So that is why I make it my principle number one, and that is we should strive. We should strive for this goal. So let's continue. Second point, pay myself second. Pay myself second and shoot for 50% savings rate. Now that's my personal goal. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't say that I found that in the spirit of prophecy anywhere. But Let's continue and, and let's see some of the principles here. So what does it say in Proverbs? Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which, while ha- which having no guide, overseer or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer and gathereth her food in the harvest. This is one of the, the ways that the whole agricultural process teaches us the importance of saving. Because if you eat everything you grow in the summer and you don't put anything up for the winter, you're going to starve. In the same way with our money, when we ha- are in our working productive years, if we are not saving, when we're retired, we're going to starve, right? Basic principle. Or even if we're well, save for a time of emergency, perhaps if we're sick or for a rainy day and so forth. So the principle from scripture is that we ought to be savers, just like the ants. So uh, a couple more verses here. This is, uh, the next one is in also Proverbs 21, verse 20. Two different versions, and let's put them together and see what it says. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spends it up. So the wise are the ones that store up. The foolish are the ones that spend everything. So, in personal finance... Whenever we look at a person's financial situation, the number one predictor of future wealth. In fact, I will go so far to say the single most important personal finance variable to determine someone's financial health and their prospects of a a successful financial future is their savings rate. The rate in which you save, not the absolute amount of money that you save, but the rate compared to what your earnings are, all right? 
Because wealth is determined not by how much you earn or how much you spend, but how much you keep. Your net worth is, is measured by how much you keep. We don't have time to go into all of the, all the intricate details about this, but this has direct implications to what we're going to talk about in the next hour about moving to the country. So we've got to keep this in mind. All right, let's move on. We're on point number three now. Third principles on the, on the note card. Don't work, don't eat. So work as unto the Lord. This is the good old Protestant work ethic, which is found in Scripture. So let's take a look at some of the verses here. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. This is one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Our work supervisor, when I was in academy, frequently reminded of this, <laughs> us of this as students when we were complaining about how hard the work was. He says, do you want to eat? Get back to work. Colossians 3.23, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. So we're not just working just for the physical sustenance, although that's a part of it, but it's because work is glorifying to God. We need to manifest our character and, and glory, glory to God in all, the, all that we do. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And then, let's go back to the Old Testament here, Genesis 2.15, and the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Was this before or after sin, this verse? It was before sin. So, you know, we, we talk about the many things that, you know, came after sin or was before sin and, and remained after, like the Sabbath and the institution of marriage. Well, guess what? Work existed before sin, and work persists after sin. The difference is, the next verse tells us, the work just got a whole lot harder after sin. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread. Gardening all of a sudden is not nearly as fun as back in Eden. That's why we have whole conventions to talk about it, because of all the problems, right, that we have to figure out. Proverbs 12, 11 says, Whoever works with his, hand, uh, with his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So there is direct application to working with our hands in the agricultural sense here as well. So, since there has been a lot of news recently about a potential recession, I felt it important in this section talking about work and, and work ethic and so forth to, to just talk a little bit about recession and what to expect. There are two groups of people in recessions. Those that have a stable income, perhaps they're in a recession-proof field of some sort, and those with unstable incomes where their jobs are insecure the people more likely to lose their jobs. For each of these classes of people, there are a few things to keep in mind. Some, the first three of these items, bullet points, are essentially the same. First is you want to fully fund your emergency fund because a recession is an economic storm. It's the literal rainy day that we're talking about economically when we need to save up. So have an emergency fund. Pay down your debts. We're going to talk about, more about debt in, in a moment. But... When interest rates just keep going up and up and up and up, that's no time to be paying more and more and more interest, right? It's a snowball that's just rolling down the mountain at you. We want to have a cash cushion for those who are financially more stable because it is a time when assets are about to go on sale. And this also has application to what we're going to talk about next hour. Real estate prices, property prices, Building material prices 
have been going up and up and up and up. The idea is that in a recession, that's when those prices correct. So if you are not in a financial position now with the cash to take advantage of that, well, we got to be starting to think smart about it because the Lord may be preparing opportunities for us to make that transition uh, if we're prepared. Now, for those of us who might have more unstable job situations, the cash cushion is to help us weather the storm. So in case we do lose our jobs, we need to find a new one or change a career or, or so forth, we have buffer to absorb it. Uh, so during this time, is an opportunity to look for, to grow your net worth if you are in the stable category and property and, and things of that nature. Uh, and for others, we may need to look at securing a different job or preparing for a new one. It may be the, you know, the little boost we need to make the transition out of whatever career we were, right? Oftentimes, these times of turmoil, I know some of the people that I've worked with, it's during economic hard times, like, oh, I guess it's time to sell the house in the city and move out in the country because cost of living is lower and so forth, all right? Uh, and also look for ways to help other people or look for ways to increase your income. If you're in a stable job, look for opportunities Whereas those who are in an unstable situation, you want to focus on security for your family. A lot more that could be said there, but hopefully that gives you a framework of how to think about this. So let's continue. Uh, the next point here, number four, budgeting. Okay, the principle, the, the, the principle on budgeting. The ideal budget is zero dollars. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that your budget should be zero what I'm saying is that's the mindset that the ideal budget is zero. And so that ought to help us prioritize our efficiency versus convenience. The question ought not to be, well, I, can I afford it? The question is, is this most efficient? Is this the most efficient use of the means that God has given to me? So I'm going to give you just one example uh, before we go to the next one here. So whenever we think about the budget, we have... Uh, all these worksheets, I think you've seen the budget worksheets, and they have like these recommended percentages, you know, for your housing, for your transportation, for your utilities, for, you know, insurance, and all these things. Sometimes we look at those and we feel like those are, you know, that's what it ought to be. Like, oh, I should be spending 30% on housing. No, 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 you got, you got to think about it differently. Those are merely the upper guidelines. Like, don't exceed this. So I'll give you one example. In our home, we have solar panels. We put solar panels on our house. And normally, you know, utility bill, I don't know what it is, $100, $200 a month, whatever it might be in your area. Uh, we put solar panels on there, so now the electric company actually pays us. So our utility bill is actually less than zero, if that's possible. And so in that situation, we've looked for ways to economize, to be more efficient with our means and not just be held to the budgeting categories that people recommend. So let's continue to the next slide now. Um, so we ought to live within our means, and that means spending less than we earn every month. It assumes that we're going to have a budget, so every dollar should be accounted for, and those budget categories or the percentages aren't recommendations. They're just merely guidelines. So there's a lot more I know that could be said about budgeting, but uh, we must hasten on to the next point. So let's keep going here. We're on number five. So the next principle is to have adequate insurance, including a three to six month emergency fund. Ellen White actually has something to say about this. Let's take a look. Avenue's home, page 395. 
You might today have had a capital of means to use in case of emergency and to aid the cause of God if you had economized as you should. Okay? Every week, a portion of your wages should be reserved and in no case touched unless suffering actual want or to render back to the giver in offerings to God. So Sister White recommends every paycheck, every pay period, take aside some money, put it aside for an emergency fund. And how much? So the general recommendation is three to six months of living expenses. Not earnings, living expenses. Because the idea is your living expenses should be less than what you make. And uh, if you are in a stable career income type situation, you can nudge closer to the three months. If your career is unstable and seasonal, income waxes and wanes depending on the time of year. I know a lot in the agricultural field, it's kind of like that. You want to edge closer to the upper end of the spectrum, maybe even above six months, okay? And this money is, should be put in an FDIC or NCUA insured account. So FDIC for the banks, NCUA for the credit unions, because this money is not an investment. People often ask me, where should I put my emergency fund to earn the highest return? I said, that's not the point of an emergency fund because there is such a thing in finance called risk and reward. The higher the risk, the higher the reward. The higher the reward, the higher the risk. And we want to lower the risk in this situation because this is our emergency fund. But I'll just mention this, with the interest rates going up, even in a basic online savings account, we can easily get four to 5% interest with FDIC insurance. So things are a little bit better than just a few years ago. And this is not to be touched except for genuine emergencies. I want to go have a veggie burger is not an emergency. I need an, a new iPhone is not an emergency, all right? My car got totaled in an accident. I need a new car to get to work. That's an emergency, right? My roof got blown off because of the tornado that came through. That's an emergency. But the interesting thing is, you will find that once you save up for an emergency fund, you find that you have fewer emergencies. It's kind of funny how that works. The simple reason is because two things. One is you have now the discipline to save. And so you've constricted your life in such a manner that you have the wiggle room to just absorb the blows that come through the vicissitudes of life. Uh, and also, the fact that you have an emergency fund, things are not as easily blown out of proportion. You can sleep easier at night, and you just kind of have a sense of calm because you have the safety net. And uh, the reports now show that most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, cannot afford even a $500 emergency. And um, I hate to break it to you, but $500 should not classify as an emergency considering the cost of living that we have nowadays. So three to six months living expense, very important uh, principle to remember. Now, what about insurance? Okay, Selective Messages, Volume 2, page 330. The principle of insurance. This is the foundational principle why we ought to have insurance. Diligence in business, abstinence from pleasure, even privation, so long as health is not endangered, should be cheerfully maintained by a young man in your circumstances, and you would have a little competency untouched should you become sick, that the charities of others would not be your dependence. There is a principle of self-reliance couch within much of Ellen White's counsel. We ought to be the head and not the tail. We are to be the lenders, not the borrowers. These are all principles. 
And so when it comes to significant catastrophic type calamities that might come, you know, properties that might get, you know, swept away in a storm or, you know, health insurance if you get in a car accident or major issues like that, we ought to do our part so that the charities of our fellow church members can be expended on others who have genuine need if we can take care of ourselves. And of course, that's the beauty of having a community of believers is that when we do have need, we can lean on each other's and carry each other's burdens. I'm not saying we shouldn't help each other, but I want to do my part so that you, the dollars that you have left to spare, don't have to help me when I'm in the time of need. You can go help somebody else that doesn't have it. And so that's where insurance comes in, right? Because we're not going to be able to save up, I'll just be frank, for all of the emergencies in life. And so insurance is a principle, or it's, it's a product, rather, financial product that can allow us to offset the risk uh, with a bit of cost to ourselves. Of course, it is possible to over-insure, and there's, you know, lots and lots th- uh, of information out there about insurance. We're not going to get into all of that, but this is the basic principle of not depending on the charities of others. So let's move on here to the next principle. We're getting into the principle number six, I believe. Never pay interest for a depreciating asset. Save up and pay in cash. Notice what I did not say. Notice I did not say, never borrow money under any circumstance. That's more of a Dave Ramsey type of mentality. I don't fully go that far, but what do I mean to, when I couch it in this way? Because let's get, let's get this straight. The principle in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy is clear that debt is not good because the borrower is servant to the lender, the Bible tells us, or the slave is also a good translation. And Avenue's Home 393, be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life, getting into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. Ooh, debt is like being in slavery and having smallpox at the same time. Now, is it a sin to be a, to be a slave, or is it a sin to have smallpox? Not necessarily. But is it a state that we ought to aspire to? Of course not. But then we have to remember that Ellen White herself actually borrowed money. Publishing Ministry, page 209. Notice what she says. I now write at, to ask you if you will let me have the use of $2,000 to help me in bringing out books that the people need. If I should fall in the conflict before the Lord's appearing, my sons would carry forward the work of circulating my books according to my plans. When the expense of issuing my books is lessened, the sales will soon pay up all my debts. So she borrowed money. Well, what was she borrowing money for? Okay, to print books that are going to be sold at a profit and that can pay off the, the debt. The Bible also tells us this story, the widow's oil. You remember this story? A single mother, widowed, two sons are about to be taken away by the creditors as slaves. And Elisha tells her, go borrow all the containers you can find from your, your neighbors. Have you ever thought about how risky that was? She's already in so much debt that she's about to lose her two sons. And Elisha says, go borrow more. What if she broke and lost all of those containers? It's not like she could just go down to Walmart and, and get some more. But the containers were filled with this miracle oil. The Bible doesn't say what kind of oil. We assume it's olive oil. Maybe they were, I don't know, maybe essential oils, maybe nowadays, who knows? The oil was sold to pay back the debt. And then what do we see? The principle between this story as well as what Ellen White did was that what she borrowed money for, both of these women, were for something that was able to pay the debt 
back. There is a difference between just borrowing money to buy stuff willy-nilly. All right, so let's see what are the rules for debt. Two rules. Number one, borrowing is acceptable only if what you're buying can pay off the debt. That's what we saw in Ellen White's example. That's what we saw in the widow's example. And the corollary, the flip side of this coin, is that never borrow money for something that only goes down in value, also known as a depreciating asset. Because if it only goes down in value, it will never be able to help you pay off the debt. So let's, let's apply, okay? Do these pass the debt rules? Student loans, yes or no? Yes, dot, 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 kind of, yeah, maybe. I mean, can you abuse it? Student loans, depends what you're studying, right? Underwater basket weaving, I don't think that's going to pay off your loan, sorry. How about a home mortgage? We're going to talk about that in the next session. How about a new iPhone? Oh, so sad. Okay, this last one is tricky. What about a car loan? <sighs> you know, I'm going to have to admit, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to explain why. If you've been looking at the car markets the last few years, you probably kicked yourself that you didn't buy a car two years ago because now you can probably sell it for a whole lot more. But this is an anomaly in the history of the prices of cars. I used to tell the joke to my friends, you know, or they always say, oh, but, you know, my car is going to go up in value. It's a vintage. It's a classic. And I'm like, sorry, your Toyota Corolla is not going to go up in value. Except the last two years, they have. But the news has it's been in the news recently. We'll see if it continues. But vehicle prices have been starting to come down. So we'll see what's going to happen in the next few months. But I continue to contend that Historically speaking, and also what I predict is going to be the case, car values are always are going to continue to decrease like they always have been. And so cars are a depreciating asset. They're an appliance. They're a tool. They're, a, they're something that you use to get from point A to point B, just like you wouldn't go into massive debt to buy your Vitamix or your lawnmower. It is time to recognize that cars fall in that category. I have other seminars where I talk about how to buy a car without a debt, uh, without a car loan and so forth. We don't have time for that here today. So the reminder here is just because it's permissible doesn't mean you must. So even if it is an acceptable form of debt, don't borrow more than what you need. All right, let's continue here. So we are on principle number seven here, point number seven. Credit cards, pay them off in full every month. So some of you must be thinking, oh, I can't believe he's saying it's okay to use credit cards. This is, an, again, another area that Dave Ramsey and I disagree. So what do I think about credit cards? Credit cards in and of themselves are not dangerous. They're just pieces of plastic. What is dangerous is using them without self-control. It is not the piece of plastic that's the problem. It's the hand that wields it. However... I think Dave Ramsey is correct in that it is possible to live without credit cards. So I know many of my friends, they choose not to live with credit cards. I've got no problem with that. More power to you if that's how you choose your life, uh, how to, you choose to live your life. No problem with that. However, I do admit, I must confess that credit cards do have benefits. It's not going to make me a millionaire, but I'll give you just one example. I do a fair amount of, of traveling and speaking and so forth. And I have a family, two children, you saw their pictures earlier, and we have a policy that as far as possible, we travel together. When you're traveling as a family of four, and sometimes you're flying, it adds up very, very quickly. 
And so how do I afford that? Credit card points. That's the only way. And of course, I give this seminar the one time my family's not with me. So you're like, oh, you're just making that up. No, really. Next week, we're going to California for another trip and airline miles. So there are benefits, but of course, it is a principle of how do you use them. So proper credit card use, how do we use them? Don't use them to buy stuff you don't need. So we got to have a budget, okay? We mentioned that earlier. And uh, credit card debt is unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. Never carry a balance. Pay them off every month. And especially now with interest rates are continuing to go up, what happens is that the interest rates on your credit card debt also continues to go up. And so this is the absolute worst time to have credit card debt. And if you violate either of these rules, that is the indication that you lack the self-control to appropriately use credit cards. So that's when it's time for plastic surgery. Cut them up. Debit cards work just fine. And so if, and then just a little tip, if you do use credit cards, be sure that you are intelligent about consolidating the use so that you actually get usable rewards. I hear some people, they're like, I've got like 13 cards, like for every single store I ever visit, and all the gas stations, and all the airlines, and all the hotels, and they're like earning a pittance on every card, and I'm like, do you ever get to use them for anything? You know, it becomes like they have like a chart that they have to keep track of which card and when to pay and all this stuff. You want to simplify your life, you don't need many cards, right? This is back to the self-control principle. Consolidate, right? If you use a lot at Costco and you buy gas or, or so forth, maybe just have a Costco card, just as one example. All right, let's continue here. So we are on point number eight. Invest first in tax-advantaged accounts. And then I list a alphabet soup of numbers and letters. Those are various types of investment accounts for retirement and health savings and college savings and so forth. I know we have also some friends here from Canada and, and different countries if they're listening on Audiverse. That may not apply to everyone. And I'm just going to mention there are plenty of free resources on Google, YouTube, that explain all of these various accounts. I'm not going to go through them here, but I'm going to focus on this first point, and that is why invest at all? It's because Jesus said so. Matthew 25, verse 27. This is the parable of the talents. The master returns to the unfaithful servant who buried the talent. What does he say? You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. You see, when we read this story, frequently we apply it to all of the various gifts that God has given to us. And there's, that is actually a good application. So we think about our speech and our strength and our influence and our time and all these things. And then we say, oh, but the one thing that this talent does not represent is money. How can that be? That is literally what Jesus was talking about. So, of course, it's not the only thing, but it certainly is one of the things, one of the talents that we must improve for the master. And, of course, the principle is we're improving it to pay back to God and to advance his gospel work here on earth, not to enrich ourselves, but the principle nevertheless is the same. We ought to invest his money so that God can receive a return on his investment. So let's talk about this a little bit. So the next principle is how do we do this, right? So buy and hold broad-based low-cost index funds or ETFs. Again, I'm not going to get into all the details about that here. There are lots of resources online uh, that will talk about the, the intricacies of that. I'm going to focus on this last section, and that is we ought to diversify our investments and not speculate. Okay? These are important principles to remember. So what is diversification? Biblically speaking, 
Uh, this is Ecclesiastes 11, verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Put another way, don't put all your eggs in one basket. If that basket drops, uh, there goes all of your profits for that day. And then regarding uh, speculation, okay, Proverbs tells us wealth gained hastily will dwindle. Whoever gathers little by little will increase it. A faithful man will abound with blessings, and whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. It's this mentality to try to get rich quick. So I want to tell you a story. We'll go to the next slide. Yeah, I want to tell you a story of in the 1630s in the Netherlands. The story of tulip mania. How many of you like tulips? How many of you grow tulips? One of our favorite household flowers. My daughters love them. Now, in Holland, in the 1630s, there was this thing called tulip mania in which people somehow got into a craze about tulip bulbs. Don't ask me how it happened, but they started to really bid up the price for tulip bulbs until one of the more exotic varieties, I don't know exactly what made it so special, was worth the equivalent of a working man's one-year salary. So in today's dollar, it's like a $60,000 tulip bulb. And there's a story one time where somebody bought one. He had a guest over, out of country, didn't know what was going on. He thought it was an onion, and he ate it for lunch. I don't think he ever was invited back. But it got so crazy that people were starting to make derivative financial instruments and options and things, contracts on, you know, fields of tulips that haven't even been planted yet for the next season. And they were trading these things, and it became a huge bubble that when it burst, it destroyed the entire Netherlands economy. That is speculation. But is growing a tulip Let's say you have a flower shop or you have a farm that you grow tulips to sell to farmers or to flower shops. Is that speculation? No. So what's the difference? Okay, speculation and investing. Let's look at the difference. Speculation, actually go back to the previous slide for me, please. Hoping is hoping for quick riches, whereas investing is patient and steady for the long term. The motive for speculating is to get rich, whereas investing is to meet our needs. Speculating is based on arbitrary price movements. If I buy this tulip bulb today, I bet tomorrow someone will pay me twice as much. Whereas investing says, what is the expected productivity of the asset? Investing is a businessman or a farmer that looks at a piece of land and says, what are the inputs I need to put in, whether it be fertilizer or water or or you know, structures and the labor and how much can I produce and how much is the market value? What can I sell these for and how much is the market going to bear and how much can I produce and what are all the risk factors? That's investing. Speculation is I don't care about tulips. I just care about making money on the next fool that's going to come around and pay me more for what I paid for mine. So speculating asks the question, what is the price? Whereas investing asks, what is the value? Okay, one is Focused about the immediate return, whereas the other is a long-term investment in the asset. All right, let's continue here. So we do not want to be speculators. We want to be investors. So this is now where we think about how much do I need? 
Okay, when you think about investing, the logical question is, so how much then do I really need? If I'm investing, let's say, for retirement or whatever it might be. I want to introduce you to the 4% rule. Okay, this is a very, very helpful back-of-the-envelope math type of financial rule that you can apply when you're thinking about your own saving and investing journey. The 1998 Trinity Study, which is a financial study that looked back through history, back even before the Great Depression, through all these periods of financial markets, they concluded that 4% was a safe withdrawal rate with a 95% success rate for a typical roughly 30-year retirement and a diversified 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio while accounting for inflation. So let me put it in other words. The 4% rule. If you have a nest egg in retirement, you can draw 4% from it every year for a roughly 30-year retirement without running out of money. So when you say, how much do I need for retirement? You just take the amount of money, the living expense you need in retirement, in year one, you simply multiply that number by 25, okay? Because you multiply by 25, and then if you reverse engineer that, that amount will be 4% of the, of the answer that you just got. And that is the target amount that you should have saved for retirement. And of course, this is a rough estimate your particular situation might be different because maybe you have special needs or special challenges or you might have you know, other sources of income and so forth that's not accounted for. But this is the general rule of thumb that you can use to help you get in the, into the ballpark figure. So let me give you some actual numbers here. All right, so as an example, uh, the next slide has a table. Let's see if I can advance. All right, so the retirement portfolio amount is on the left. And the amount on the right is the annual withdrawal amount that you would be able to withdraw. And this amount would go up every year with inflation because your balance is still growing at a rate faster than inflation. So if you have a $500,000 portfolio in retirement, you can withdraw $20,000 per year starting in year one. So let's suppose that you or you and your wife perhaps get, let's just, I'm just using this as an example. You get, you need $40,000 to live per year just as a round number. And you get $20,000 from Social Security and perhaps a pension from your workplace. So you have a $20,000 gap. So that $20,000 using the 4% rule, that means you need a $500,000 portfolio invested in this broadly diversified 60-40 type allocation to get you the $40,000 income that you need per year. Okay? Does this make sense how, how the math works? The 4% rule, it's not that complicated and it is a very general rule of thumb that applies to most people in most circumstances that give you a good ballpark figure to shoot for, and then you just tweak and refine from there, okay? And most financial planners that you go to, this is where they're gonna start with you. And of course, the numbers go up as you proceed up the scale. So principle number 10, the last point here on our index card, forget keeping up with the Joneses. Wealth is having enough with contentment. This is so important because this is dealing with the condition of the heart. So one of my favorite personal finance verses in the Bible is found in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, because this gives us the balanced view, what we ought to be striving for when it comes to our money management. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see the balance there. Is there a danger in having excessive wealth? Absolutely. Jesus himself said it. it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty serious stuff. But this passage also tells us, hang on, go back for me, please. This passage also tells us that there is a danger in being impoverished because we are tempted to steal or to covet. There are dangers in both extremes. Another Bible verse that we frequently reference when it comes to money is, for the love of money is the what? The root of all evil. Is it possible to love money even when we don't have any? Ah, the love of money can afflict even those of us with less. It's not just a condition for the super filthy rich. And so the principle here is the same. Give me neither food, uh, poverty nor riches. Give me what I need. Give me what is needful for me. The goal is to be content with having enough. All right, next slide here tells us. Uh, this is from, let's see if I can... Epictetus is a Greek philosopher. It says, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. But that's also what Jesus said, or rather God says in the Bible. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So the last verse for today, as we are running out of time here, the last verse for today is found in Philippians. I need a little help in the back. I apologize. Philippians 4, verse 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I am learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That is the spirit in which Paul wants to persist in. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many of us have ever claimed that promise at the end of that verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I claim that promise all the time. When I'm about to do something difficult or when I was in school and I had to take a test. But notice the specific context in which this promise was invoked. It is to have a spirit of contentment. Paul recognized it is exceedingly difficult for us as human beings to be satisfied with what we have. It's easy to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. It's easy for us to look on Instagram and Facebook and say, I want to be like that person. I wish I had what that person had. And I'm going to maybe go a little close to home here. I wish my garden looked better, as good as theirs. I can't believe their produce looks so amazing compared to mine. And we just have... A little bit, hopefully not too much, but a little bit of that, you know, green envy. <laughs> the spirit of contentment, right? Maybe the Lord is teaching us something. Hey, you can improve, but in the same time, learn to be content with what God has given to us. And we have this promise to claim, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's conclude with our last slide here. And this is just a review of the 10 principles. Let's just go through them one last time and, and we'll end. Number one. Pay God first. Aim for 25% or more because God is the owner of everything. We are simply his managers, and this reminds us who's the owner. 
and who we work for. Number two, pay myself second. Make saving a priority. Make it intentional. It is the number one indicator of uh, financial success. Number three, don't work, don't eat. So work unto the Lord. Maintain a good, solid work ethic and work hard. Number four, the ideal budget is zero dollars. Prioritize efficiency over convenience. Make sure you're living frugally and efficiently on a budget. Number five, have adequate insurance, including a three to six month emergency fund so that the charities of others need not to be dependent upon in our time of need. Number six, never pay interest for a depreciating asset, save up and buy in cash. So debt is acceptable in certain circumstances, but it is still slavery with smallpox, a state we want to escape uh, as quickly as possible. So number seven, pay off credit cards in full every month. Number eight, invest first in your taxable accounts. Number nine, buy and hold broad-based low-cost low index funds or ETFs. Diversify, don't speculate. And then number 10, forget keeping up with the Joneses. Wealth is having enough with contentment. And so that takes me right to the end of my time. I apologize. I wish I had more qu time for questions, but feel free to come up and talk to me. Um, maybe not after this session because we have another one right after this, but I would be happy to talk to you. But let's conclude together with prayer as we wrap this up uh, for this session. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the practical wisdom you give to us in your word and in the spirit of prophecy. May we apply them in our lives in a manner that is glorifying to you. For Lord, we are simply your servants with talents in our hands that we want to improve for your glory. Give us wisdom and give us the spirit of contentment that Paul has just, that we just read about from Paul. And may we claim that promise. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Guide us the remainder of this afternoon and this conference, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.